Gratopod peeps, it's maybe Q. I'm here without Larry, which is sad. Uh, and I'm not in the Gratopod. I'm actually in my own little home office, air quotes. Uh, it is my office, but it is very small. It's not as small as the Gratopod, but it's pretty small and it is filled with books and papers and all kinds of crap. And it's amazing I ever get anything done. But at any rate, I'm not here to talk about me. I'm here to talk about the Grotto Pod because it's December. It's almost our one-year anniversary, and we are going to spend the rest of the month revisiting some of our favorite authors who came to talk to us. And the first is our very first Grotto Pod episode ever with Shanti Sekaran, who has a novel called Lucky Boy that has swept the nation. It is now out in paperback. It has been named NPR's uh, one of the best books of 2017. It is been, it is been, no, that's not proper grammar, but that's what it's like when you're talking to yourself. Okay. It has been long listed for the Aspen Words Literary Prize 2018. And I believe this is the first year of this prize. So that could be a very big deal. If she wins, she could win. Um, if you haven't read Lucky Boy, you are in for a treat. Such a good book. So timely, so beautifully written. Um, what else do I want to say? Oh my gosh. Yeah. So, uh, Ava Longoria has acquired Lucky Boy to make it into a uh, television series a la Natalie Bazile's Queen Sugar. So that is super exciting. Um, Shanti has been on Latino USA. She's been on PRI's The World. She has been all over the world on a book tour. Um, she was recently, recent, recently, I'm sorry. It's hard to talk to yourself. I just want to say. Um, oh, she has recently been in Nashville with Celeste Ng and was introduced by Ann Patchett, which is a little bit of a writer dream come true, in my opinion. Uh, she was at the Edinburgh Book Festival. And you know what else? She was at the Honolulu Book and Music Festival. And I know this because I got to be there too. And lucky me, I'm the lucky girl. I got to be at the exact same time slot as Shanti. So, um, yeah, that was not so good for me, but that's okay. Cause I love Shanti. I love lucky boy and I, you know, can't wait to share this with you. If you've heard it once, listen again. If you haven't heard it, you're in for a treat. Happy December. Here you go. Shanti Sacred. Yes. Yeah. Nice pronunciation, Rosen. Shanti is the author of the uh, just-released Lucky Boy on G.P. Putnam and Sons, uh, also the author of The Prayer Room, which she just re-released herself on paperback, which I'm kind of interested in mm-hmm. hearing. Um, Shanti comes to us with a very unique point of view. Uh, I'd like to kick off, actually, by talking about the New York Times article you wrote about the privileged immigrant. Mm -hmm. Could you explain to us a little bit about what you mean by that? It seems like immigration is in the air today. Especially today because this is January. Right. (laughs) January, yeah. So explain, of course, and include the now infamous story of your parents arriving with. (laughs) The infamous story. So they now... Apparently, I think but now it's six dollars. It was six dollars in the store. Six dollars. Yeah. It went to twelve. There was some sort of purchase of a watch that, oh. that didn't make it into. As the long article. as it wasn't a bridge, which could have <laughs> happened. 
that it wasn't a bridge, it was a watch. So there was a $10 watch purchase somewhere along the way. So anyway, the story is that my parents arrived in America, and I had this idea because of something my mom told me when I was a kid, that they'd arrived with $6 and nothing more to their name Aww. in their pockets and, and scrabbled their way up the, <clears throat> okay. the American dream and so, and so on. The reason I bring this up is, is, is the... <clears throat> well, I'm, I'm not sure how much you want to talk about the specific new book, Lucky Boy, mm-hmm. uh, just released. And also, by the way, uh, an Amazon.com uh, best book for January yeah. 2017. But, uh, for a good you, reason, because I've already to, read it. Well, and, I, I and, I am, it. and I'm 100 pages short of the ending, so don't tell me how it ends. Oh, I'm not going to tell uh, you. But before you get a big head, let me tell you that on Amazon, people who bought your book also bought The Dry by Jane Harper, an atmospheric page-turning mystery. Really? I have no idea why okay. those two books have been paired together, okay. but they have. But you write about in this book, um, would you call it the privileged immigrant experience versus the unprivileged immigrant experience? That is definitely a part of it. Yeah. I mean, if you look at Kavya and Rishi, who are my other protagonists, aside from um, Soli, who is my undocumented protagonist. So if you look at Kavya and Rishi, they have had sort of a typical Indian-American experience, um, typical for people of my generation whose Which parents... Which is? My generation, I was born in the late 70s. You know, I'm sort of of that age. And young. so my A millennial. Parents, yeah, the young generation. <laughs> young and I'm awesome. 40. In this room, um, you are definitely <laughs> the young generation. Uh, so uh, people like Kavya and Rishi and me, our parents came over... In the 60s, maybe 70s, my parents in particular were recruited as medical professionals, medical mm-hmm. graduates. And America needed foreign medical graduates because we didn't have enough doctors to populate the Medicare system. Now, this is fascinating to me because I had no idea this was going on. Mm-hmm. So they were recruiting in other countries, getting people to come over here. And then this, this is yeah. part of your New York Times story. So you That's can right. pick that mm-hmm. back up. Yeah, yeah. So with my New York Times story, I talked <clears> about my parents coming over And the fact that, yes, they were totally new to this country. They were in upstate New York. You know, there were not many other Indians. I think they had one or two other friends that they knew from medical school. Um, But it was not a multicultural society. People did not really get what Indians were, despite Mm -hmm. the fact that it's this, you know, huge, highly populated country. Huge. (laughs) But in America in the 1960s, like, India wasn't really a thing. And so they came to this country and did have to deal with racism and ignorance and isolation and loneliness. In upstate New York. In upstate and the cold. Yeah. But But not aimlessness and poverty. Not yeah, well, you know, I wouldn't call undocumented immigrants aimless, but they did not have to deal with this uncertainty of whether or not Uncertainty, yeah. Yeah, of whether or not they Or even uncertainty in what they were gonna do once they were here. Right, exactly. They knew exactly what they were here for. Yeah, they had a job lined up. They mm-hmm. had an apartment waiting for them, um, provided by the hospital. And they had a path. They had a way to be here legally and a way to earn a living. <clears throat> so I'm going to go back a little bit here because uh, I'm interested in this sort of thing. It seems like so, – so you set out to write Lucky Boy. I did not read the first book, but you set out to write Lucky Boy to explore mm-hmm. this sort of dichotomy between the privileged and unprivileged immigrant. And that's also a lot of parenthood stuff that we'll get into. Uh, but let's go into your background a little bit then. Um, 
you were born in 1979. 77. 77. Mm-hmm. Sorry, almost, almost hitting the big 4-0. Ooh. I know. Oh, my gosh. Uh, doesn't remember the bicentennial, however, because she wasn't around for it. Exactly. Uh, raised in East Bay? Raised in Sacramento. Sacramento, that's yeah. right. Yeah. Sacramento. So what was it like for you growing up there then? And I'll throw the question out that I like throwing out. And what? And given that... Uh, stereotype or not, the, the the idea of the Indian parent, the hard-charging Indian parent, when you told them, I'm going to be a fiction writer. Okay, so growing up in Sacramento, there were not many Indians around. We had a pretty tight Indian community, but I think that's because there were not mm-hmm. that right. many Indians around. You know, people would find each other in grocery stores. I think I mentioned this in the article. My, my friend's um, dad looked up every... Telugu name, you know, that that's his language. He looked up every name in the phone book that he could find and just called those people. Just cold called them. Cold called them. And said what his name was. I love that. But I imagine it probably went okay. It went okay. That was back when people picked up their phones. Exactly. Uh, Yeah, it's like, oh, the phone's ringing. I'll answer it. I'll answer it. It could be some new friend I haven't met yet. That never happens anymore. It doesn't happen anymore. (laughs) That does not happen. I wish it did. I know, but I'm not picking it up. No No way, because it's never, it's always someone trying to sell me something. Or more often, it's just nobody. But I, I'm Which just is also weird. Yeah. This is a great story. Okay, yeah. sorry. But continue. I had to. So that. growing up, you know, the majority of our parents from my generation, the majority of our parents were doctors. There were some engineers, not really any lawyers or anything. It was like doctor, maybe an engineer, maybe an academic, and maybe a business person. But the idea was that, and I think this goes for a lot of immigrant communities, the idea was that you need, as a young child of immigrants, you need to forge a path for yourself that is going to be reliable. Reliable. That's, That's kind of what I'm yep. yeah. gunning at here. Because my parents had no safety net, really. I mean, they didn't have a trust fund. They didn't have relatives in India who could fund Were they allowed them. to become American citizens after they'd been here a certain amount of time? Or is there some kind of work visa where you can't do that? They were allowed to. Okay. Yeah. So they were here on a work visa, and I'm not sure exactly what their immigration path was, but in the 80s, 90s, they became citizens. But it's interesting to me that, so, even though they were doing well, they didn't get that sort of quintessentially American idea that you kids can do whatever you want. They had that idea. So they would tell me, you know, you can No, I don't mean you can be anything you want. You can succeed more like... Oh, you want to study, you know, you want to major in ethnic studies. Oh, Go right. for it. Yeah. That I don't, sort I don't of understand thing. this. Tell me. So something like an English major, actually both my brothers and I were all English majors. Something like an English major has like in my parents' mind one sort of eventual destination, which is that of a, an academic. academic. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So that was fine. You know, if I wanted to get my PhD... Which you did, right? I did get a PhD in creative writing, which is different. I didn't even know there was such a thing. Yeah. And if I wanted to do that and be like, you know, a professor at a university, great. I could do that. Um, But there had to be like a certain amount of financial stability at the end of whatever road. And and novelist doesn't really have that ring. Novelist does not ring. So I'm going to sit in bars and write poems on the back of napkins, not so much. not so much. I mean, I could have stayed in Is that what made you, I I mean, I've been hearing more and more about creative writing PhD. 
do you think there that was the impulse to get it? Was it something within yourself? Was it a feeling that that's going to sort of punch all the tickets and so I can teach anywhere? I mean, what was the motivation? Or I just want to really become the best writer I can and this is the best way to do it. The creative writing PhD eventually enabled me to do things that I never would have been able to do so how, otherwise. For the benefit of our listeners and, yeah. and perhaps me who's never didn't know there was a creative mm. writing PhD, what sort of advantage does that give you over an MFA? For me, what I see as the advantage is, I mean, there, there are two possible advantages. One is that if you're looking for a job teaching creative writing, right. then a PhD in creative writing might give you a leg up over someone else, but only if you have like some good books yeah. under your belt, some good publications under your belt. For me personally, what my PhD helped me to do, and I did it at uh, the University of Newcastle in England, what that enabled me to do was face down this very daunting mountain of research that I had for this book, for Lucky Boy. Oh, fantastic. And so that was folded into this book. It actually this wasn't. Book. Okay. So I wrote this book after, I know, it's all very complicated. It's very confusing. I wrote this book Life. after my PhD was done. Okay. But having done my PhD, because I, I had to write a novel, that's what I wrote The Prayer Room for, and I had uh, to do a critical thesis. It. And the critical thesis, you know, it took a lot of research and it took a lot of work and it was a real sort of slog and a lot of mental effort that I kind of didn't want to spend, but I did it. And having pursued that and achieved that gave me the mental strength, I think, and, and the courage to look at what, was, what it was going to take to write Lucky Boy and say, okay, I can get started with this. So for me personally, that's what the PhD did. I want to dive into this idea of the research you did because I find it fascinating. And we'll get back to sort of the chronological, this is your life stuff. Mm -hmm. um, explain some of the research you did for Lucky Boy um, because, you know, you write very convincingly from the point of view of an undocumented immigrant trying to get from deep in Mexico across the border. Mm -hmm. How did you research that? Yeah, so I researched that in many ways. The the thing I started out with was uh, narratives from undocumented immigrants. There's this great book called Underground America, and it's edited by Peter Orner, who was also at the Grotto right. at some point. And those were just, you know, oral histories from undocumented immigrants about the things that they'd been through and the things that they were still going through. And that gave me a good foundation in what the dialogue was around the undocumented experience. So I started off with that. I started off just watching documentaries. I sort of, from that, started to form the parameters of what my story was going to be. And then I, I went deeper and deeper. I talked to immigration lawyers. I talked to people who wrote about policy. I talked to a psychologist who worked with undocumented immigrants. Basically, anyone who would talk to me, I, I did you did you actually did you go to Mexico? I went to Mexico. So yeah, at a certain I would point, feel like you'd have to go to the place. Yeah, at a certain point, I felt like I hit a wall with a book. Like I'd sort of ma made up this town that my <laughs> character was from, which is scary, right? I mean, because yeah. if you get that wrong, you, the details right. wrong, the right. flavor yeah. wrong, you're going to look like a jerk. And I didn't even know what the details or flavor could be because right. you know I hadn't lived in Mexico, so I was like, okay, I have to get there. So I met this great writer named Michael Sledge. And he has a artist residency in Oaxaca in this little village. He just hits Oaxaca. people over the head with his stuff. Basically. 
I'm not sure what that means. He's got the name for it. Oh, Oh, sledgehammer. Sledgehammer. I I get it. That's where I'm going with that. All right. Please continue. Uh, (laughs) So I met him at a party, and he told me about this place that he and his partner ran. And I thought, wow, that's great. I wish I had the guts to go down there. And then eventually I was like, okay, you got to do this. It took me Mm -hmm. months to sort of work up the courage to, you know, arrange this and like figure out what I was going to do and really go down there. Cause that's when you really commit to a story. When you bodily take yourself from one place to another, that's when you cross a border. And it's almost, and it's interesting because I think, uh, that question can also have a lot of influence on where you write about. It's almost Mm -hmm. like when you make a movie, budgetary concerns have a lot to do with the setting. Yeah. And if you you thinking, you know, I don't really want to go to Mexico. I think I'll set this in San Diego instead. <laughs> it would, you know, that, knowing that whether or not you're, story, yeah, right? knowing whether or not you'd be able to do that. Yeah. So this was huge in helping me give Soli a place that she was from. Like a I would think it would be paramount. Yeah. To really get inside of her and start thinking the way she thinks. Now I'm thinking that the couple probably wasn't that much of a stretch for you. No, that was pretty. You know, more or less me. I live like half a mile from where they live. In some ways, though, I find writing things that are very close to me to Mm -hmm. be very difficult Mm -hmm. sometimes for me. I don't know if that is that way for you. And what I found as a reader, because I know that you live in the East Bay and found out that you lived in Berkeley, is I don't feel any disparity between the places Mm -hmm. in terms of their description, in terms of tone. I think that's pretty masterful. I think that's admirable. And as a reader... I want to stay in that dream. I never felt pulled out, and that's fantastic. Yeah, and thinking back, there's just as many really inside baseball details about the Mexican village mm-hmm. as there are about Berkeley. Of course, we can read about Berkeley and go, yeah, I, I may have been rolling my eyes at a few details because mm-hmm. I have that feeling about Berkeley. No offense, Berkeley. So but um, but the same amount of details. Like I, and it was stuff that clearly as a layman I would never have known. I wouldn't have known about the building, the houses. Right. Honestly, I found um, the scene in the Berkeley sorority almost as uh, interesting, yeah, alien looking in at the other as I did being in a small village in Mexico. Mm-hmm. I was like, well, what goes on in well, that sorority? You know. yeah. And you did research with that as well. I did. So a friend of mine on my soccer team is a chef in a sorority. Who like, knew? Oh, well. well now we do. Larry knows. Everybody knows. <laughs> I know. Um, that's Bridget, a great job. Yeah, she was busy being a punk rocker. So, but wait, so so you went and like, did you pretend to be in the sorority? Did you just hover <laughs> around the outside? That. You can't do that. Oh no, because they know. Oh, because well, you got it. You got You got a pledge. Oh, she looks so It'd young be like, to me. That'd be like that's a plot of a Rodney Dangerfield movie. I don't <laughs> no, think it's that not. Would it's the work. plot of Fast Times at Ridgemont High. But he was like 22 when he made that movie. Look at this. Face. I know she's very youthful, but I think yeah. it'd be more of a okay, Vince Vaughn right. back I'm to crazy. school type anyway, of thing. Okay, so carry on. I, I should have done that. I wish I'd pledged. Hey, like, I'm the new pledge. That seems like something Amy Sedaris <laughs> would do. And they're talking behind her back. like, she's yeah. really old. <laughs> <laughs> Unconventional student. No, I'm 19. What are you talking about? And that's, the ageist, bitches. But that's a good point. I mean, it probably wasn't that important to get that right. It, not a ton happens in the sorority. In the sorority kitchen. Yeah, but I, but I wanted this. So my, my friend was is a sorority chef and i was like well this is a kind of a great job to give coffee i didn't want her to be like an engineer or an academic so i basically just spent an afternoon in that kitchen with him and his assistant and just just watched what they did and watched what things looked like and what people said 
But what I really liked is it would be so easy to set those sorority girls up as the 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 bad guys, mm-hmm. the the problem, the reason things are this way. It's yeah. not set up like that. There's a real no. empathy for everyone in the whole right. book. Yeah, that's a. We were talking about that earlier this morning <clears throat> uh, before we started the podcast. That you don't judge because I said, "Am I supposed to like the Berkeley couple or not?" Mm-hmm. And we weren't sure actually, mm-hmm. but you just lay out facts. I mean, everyone, no one's, you know, no one's a saint, no one's a sinner. Everyone's somewhere in between. Yeah. Life is complicated. Life is complicated. And love is complicated. Mm -hmm. Love is complicated, especially a mother's love. So let's talk about that a little bit. What did you set out to say in this book about a mother's love? A mother's love, I mean, many things, but I guess one of the things I wanted to say was that a mother's love is, it's... It's fluid. It can go. It can be possessed by people who are not, you know, biologically mothers. It seems like you were trying to say a lot about who's eligible for a mother's love, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it's not just the one who gave birth. Right. It's not just the one who gave birth. It's a human impulse. You know, we when we were cave women, we found babies Mm -hmm. next to caves, and, and we picked them up and loved them. Right. I think. Absolutely. Yeah. I also felt like. There's a question, what is the right, uh, what's the right thing for the child? Mm-hmm. That's a big what's, question, yeah, isn't it? What's, what, I mean, mother's love is one thing. What about the money? Right. What about stability? What about right. safety? Yeah. What about, so uh, all things being equal, there's a lot of love on both sides. Only one side has money mm-hmm. and stability. <laughs> and, as my and, mother used to say, you could fall in love with a rich girl just as easily. Yeah, that's like a classic New Yorker cartoon, <laughs> right? I believe in falling. I believe in marrying for love. I'm going to fall in love with the first millionaire I meet. Right. <laughs> um, and, you know, but even though the book has a very clear ending, mm-hmm. that question is not answered for me. Right. It wasn't answered for me. Yeah. And it's a it's it's not a simple question it seems simple i think and it's not a simple question it's not a simple question and i think even outside of my book it's a question that really hangs over places like berkeley and Absolutely. other sort of progressive you know Absolutely. moneyed parts of the us where you have parents who are capable of giving their children the best of everything you know the best swim lessons the best preschool but the question is, is that what the child needs? Mm-hmm. You know, is that if a, if a parent didn't have money, where would the child be? Would they, would they be just as well off? Right. And many people are. Mm-hmm. Right. But it's not – that's not the whole question. I mean it's not whether the child has money or not. You can either be you – know, you could be moneyed and unloved. Mm-hmm. Or you could be moneyed and loved. Mm-hmm. It's not really. Exactly. But know, in this case, Nacho is loved, loved by both by sides. Both. Right. So that is the only difference in this case that I saw. And that, but, but that one has a biological imperative and one has, I don't know, state imperative? What would. The, I think it's kind of. Well, I was going to say it's, it's biological in its own way. I mean, I guess by definition, it can't be biological. But I think it's more than they're wanting to love someone. She definitely has a connection with him immediately. She didn't have a connection with the other kid that was there. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's really interesting the way you have Rishi come around to mm-hmm. fatherhood. Mm-hmm. I did not have that experience personally. It you just, never came around to fatherhood. No, it happened immediately. <laughs> but again, different yeah. experience. Yeah. I saw this kid come out of my wife. It's like, hey. Right, yeah. Uh, but it was interesting the things he is struggling with. And I yeah. like the way you also 
you sort of infuse them with just a little bit of that 60s dad, like I'm out here making the money mm-hmm. type of thing. This mm-hmm. is important for all of us. I need mm-hmm. to focus on this giant project at work. Yeah. Um, was it your intent to lampoon Berkeley at all? I think Berkeley is very lampoonable. I love Berkeley. You know, I don't know where else I can See, I can't get world. off the part. Did you, did you go to Berkeley? <laughs> I went to Berkeley. And Berkeley, growing up in, in Sacramento, Berkeley oh. was always this mecca of, like, culture and fresh air and good food. Not in a Terry Gross sort Not of way. Not in a Terry Gross, although that too. That too, but, yeah. Um, yeah, it was always this, like, great place where, like, everything was more beautiful and everything was better. Fresher. The fresher. peaches are perfect. Yeah. <laughs> right. So I love Berkeley, but I think it's a place that kind of does lampoon itself. Yeah, I mean, you don't miss a trick. You even have a mom feeding kale chips to her kid. Yeah. Well, I saw that. And it wasn't just kale chips. It was just full-on kale. <laughs> There's no salting or, or crispiness. But you cut kale. yourself on the corners of the kale. It's very it sharp. It made her happy. It was, uh, that was actually true to life. I was at the farmer's market, and this little girl fell and was crying. And her mom was like, here, have, have some kale. <laughs> yeah, replace she, your, and she replace took, your sadness with anger. She took the kale and was just, like, chewing on it. And, you know, I've seen similar things. We have one of these little uh, mini Whole Foods in our neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And I've seen kids get conned into thinking Rainforest crisps, crisps are potato chips. Yeah. It's terrible. Yeah, my kids are way too smart for that. I know. My yeah, kids no would way not with my have. Kid. I was at a school bake sale once where um, a, a girl wanted to buy one of the – little girls wanted to buy a donut. And the mom said, I don't think you'll like it, honey. You're used to really good vegan donuts. And I just thought that was so mm. funny. It's not like a kale chip. It's right. still a donut. Yeah. Why wouldn't you like it? I just, Why are vegan donuts better? They're, they're just, not. They she just, be she wanted She wanted oh. to trick her, I guess, into not okay. wanting the donut. Oh, okay. so she... I don't know. But, but so, and that's in San Francisco. So the, that, and that's part of what's... Well, it's so of different similar. from Berkeley. Yeah, it's right. much more gritty. Um <laughs> And that's part of why I think it would be lampoonable because, in essence, I mean, you have parents that are trying to trick their children, yeah. <laughs> which isn't such a great thing. I don't know. Yeah. I, you know, from the motherhood perspective, one of the hardest things for me reading the book, being a parent of older children, even though I can remember with so much tenderness and and terror those young years <laughs> and, you know, losing a child mm-hmm. in the playground or... Mm-hmm. You know, what if anything happened to my child? All those things. My son is the same age as Soli when she comes over the border. And it was just wrenching for me to think of her being by herself in a completely different way uh-huh. than a, as a different kind of character where I'm identifying with the character. I was identifying her with my child. And it was unbearable, unbearable to think of what was at yeah. risk. Everything yeah. was at risk, yeah, obviously. Yeah, she was pretty young. She was 18. She was 18. 18. Right. Yeah. Which She's, I forgot. Almost immediately, like, oh, she's a grown woman. See, I couldn't, I couldn't forget it because I had that in my mind. And just that, and to know, I mean, there's kids a lot younger than that coming over the border, yeah. lots younger. And God, I mean, it's, it's gripping. Yeah. Well, these young women, they have to be grown women, you know, going over the border. They, yeah. they, they're just thrust into adulthood, into looking after themselves and children too. Right. Can you explain yeah. uh, the kind of research you did for the detention scenes? Yeah. yeah so I don't want to give away scenes. too much of the book yeah. by saying that there are detention scenes. Right. Yeah. Um, for the detention center, I started off reading some work by a lawyer who has made it his specialty to sort of investigate detention centers and write about them in, in a policy way. Um, and so I started off with that. I trained with a group that was working with detention centers. So I visited one. Um, there's one in Richmond, California. That I Not visited. far away. Not far away from here. 
And so I visited it. I got the full spiel from, you know, the people who run the detention center. We had some good sessions, you know, talking about what a detainee would need from us. So we were with this program whose initial goal was to basically have visitors for the detainees, just someone to sit there and listen to them, mm-hmm. whatever, whatever they wanted to talk about. Um, So that was the initial goal of this program. And then it kind of transferred into a program that was more of an advocacy program that would help detainees get in touch with their relatives um, that might give them some legal advice, legal representation. So the body, the, the organization itself kind of morphed over time. But I did get this initial training with them, which gave me a good eye into what a detainee would need and, and what they would be And thinking. also the kind of things that happen to her are things that happen? Those are things that happen, yeah. So the things that happen in the t- detention center, Oof. I mean, it's they're basically prisons. So you're going to have the same abuses of power that you would have in a prison. Right. Sometimes they actually technically are prisons, you know, and they also have some detainees in there. Um, did you actually go to a detention center? I went to the one in Richmond. Mm-hmm. Because I would think you have to. Yeah. To yeah. really understand kind of the brutality of the structure itself. Right. You know, and, and what goes on in there. So, you know, I, I personally don't write heavy things. I'm more of a humorous type. Mm-hmm. What does writing something like this do to you? When you sit down to write harrowing scenes, scenes of loss, yeah. scenes of shattered hopes... How do you make dinner afterwards? Well, you know, as a writer, I think that you experience, I experience the scene in a different way. So as a reader, you experience the scene on the receiving end, mm-hmm. right? So you get that terror, you get that that heaviness, that weight. But as a writer, really what I was trying to do was to, was to communicate this incident in the clearest, you know, most precise, most effective way possible. So I was approaching it from a very technical... So craftsman. Yeah, a very a very craft-oriented perspective. So I could lose myself in that. I could lose myself in the craft, in the te- technical aspects of what I was writing. But on the other hand, you're very close to these characters mm-hmm. and to do such horrible things to them. Mm-hmm. That's Isn't drama. It, it takes a little <laughs> yeah. toll, though. It takes, probably takes a little toll. Yeah. Or a little sadism. <laughs> I don't know which. Yeah, well... No, I don't think I'm sadistic. Um, I don't think you're sadistic at all. Yeah. But you do have to be able to put them through the ringer, man. That's yeah. that's what makes the well, story. Yeah, and what I thought about was the people who actually are going through these things. You know, my fictional characters are not purely fictional. They're representative of mm-hmm. what real people are going through. And so it was one of my goals to actually represent what real people are going through. So that actually also brings up another question I wanted to ask. So what were your purposes in writing this book? Obviously to tell a story. We're Mm -hmm. all here to tell stories. Mm -hmm. But beyond that, there seems to be more weight than just telling a story. My purposes, my initial purpose was to try to understand what was going on in the heads of people on either side of these equations, the undocumented parents and the the documented adoptive parents. So that was my my initial purpose to really try to understand what people's what was driving people to do what they did but my overall goal i think was to 
simply portray Soli, my undocumented immigrant, to portray her as, you know, as a person. We we hear so mm-hmm. much about undocumented immigrants or illegal immigrants as these sort of actors in a in a news headline. You know, we never actually get to meet them when we hear about them on the news. They're sort of just pawns in whatever political discourse mm-hmm. is happening. So one of my goals was simply to portray a person. You know, these are people who are coming over the border. These are people who are trying to survive and, and trying to make something of themselves. And I think that comes through uh, to kind of circle back to what's something I said earlier in that no one's really being judged here. Mm-hmm. Things are just kind of laid out. Here's how they are. And there are no... And they're laid out with heart. Right. There's no bad guys doing bad stuff. Right. Just bad stuff happening other than the guards at the... There's... Sure. The guards are kind of bad. They're bad. Yeah. They're baddies. Yeah. Some of them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I, I mean, this is a delicate question, but one I'm sure that you've thought of already. Did you have... I mean, you are Indian American. You have two characters or more than two who are Indian American you can say with authority, it's okay, I'm writing from this perspective. Mm-hmm. Did you have uh, Mexican-American friends who are writers read the book and see, like, is it balanced? Are these? Do you feel like this is an okay perspective? Um, did you tr- trust your gut? Did you, like, how, how did you follow through? So for the most part, it, and I'm glad you asked this question because it's Very a good. daunting... And it's one on a lot of people's minds. Especially with the recent Lionel Shriver thing with the sombrero, which was at the Brisbane Writers Festival. And, um, you know, I mean, it's it's a a completely understandable concern for a lot of Mm -hmm. people who, especially groups who have been voiceless many Mm -hmm. times or Mm -hmm. or under underrepresented. But it's also a writing concern. Yeah, especially as a novelist. Mm -hmm. So take it away. That's it. So (laughs) I approached this very carefully. Um, I did have... I, I did have Latina and Latino friends read this, um, and I just said, you know, call me out on anything that does not ring true, mm-hmm. anything that makes you sort of cringe, or anything that just doesn't sound right, anything that, that raises an eyebrow. Um, and so I did do that. And when I started off writing the book, I think my goal was to start very cautiously, to right. almost... And whenever I could, I tried to forget that Soli was Mexican. You know, I focused on Soli as a young woman, as right. a woman traveling across the border, taking her life into her hands, and later as a mother. And that's where I really tried to dive into those points where I understood her. Like, I understood her as a young woman. I understood her as a mother. Right. Um, and I tried to enhance her character in those terms because that essentially is what she is. She's a mother and she's a young woman and the elements of her immigration and of her lack of a visa, that's that's paperwork. So that's paperwork that affects her life and affects what she's mm-hmm. going to do. But essentially she's a young mother. Right. right. Um, so that's how I started out and I did have you know people sort of look at this. I had a, a few very gracious friends who were willing to read what I wrote. And I fully expect that there will be people who don't like the fact that I have written about a Mexican And a lot of it probably will come from people who haven't read it. Yeah, that's very possible. Uh, And and what do you think 
What do you think as a fiction writer? Do you think everyone should have the opportunity to write from any perspective? Absolutely. Yeah, they absolutely should. Um, I think that fiction writers, that's our job. We write outside of our perspective. If I had just written, you know, within my experience, I would have been, the, every book is would be about like right. a chubby suburban girl on the Beatles poster, <laughs> you know. Exactly. <laughs> Sacramento, uh, which well, is you know, a great but limited palette. <laughs> there is, I mean, there is that write what you know, Saw, but I think it's misinterpreted mm-hmm. into thinking write scenes from your own life. Right. I think of it more in write themes that you know. Sure. Yeah. Write about things that are important to you. And I, I feel like you've done that here. Although I'm wondering, and this may be too personal of a question, but the experience of being people who can't conceive. Yeah. You have children. I have children. I had no trouble conceiving. Thankfully. That's a different world. That's a different world entirely. So for that, I have How did to you talk research that? Yeah. You know, I talk to people. Unfortunately, there's no shortage I was gonna of say, people who struggle. We know so many. They right? lied to us in high school. Boy. Sorry, I don't want to get into it on air, but yeah. it can happen <laughs> the other are, way. Yeah. Right. And so I talked to a lot of people, um, people close to me who had struggled with fertility. And I did some research. You know, I had my own fact checkers, like friends, relatives, who mm. sort of looked at what I had written to see if it jived with their experience. And that, for that, you know, part of what I went to, if, if you're thinking of what... I was able to access to give me the emotional capacity to write about this. So part of what I accessed was my own struggle, not to conceive, but to get published. Hmm. So I I acknowledge that they're very, very different experiences. Like I can't equate the inability to have a child with the inability to publish a novel. But I would say that they're analogous. The obsessiveness, the desire, Mm -hmm. the drive, the need, Mm -hmm. the heartbreak. But how did you access... The character really questions herself as a woman. Mm-hmm. How did you access that? That's not – I understand what it's like not to get a book published. Right. I don't understand what it's like to not be able to conceive. Yeah. Yeah. It well, would mean – and even if we hadn't been able, it would have meant something completely different to me as right. a guy. Right. You know, conception and having children, that's so, of course, tied in with the body. There's so much about the body that you can feel physically when you're conceiving or not conceiving. And so I have, I've never, I've never like suffered a miscarriage. I've never gone through that, but I've gone through the other physical things that happen to a woman when, you know, when she gets her period, et cetera, et cetera. Um, So being able to tie into the facts of what happens in a body was one way to sort of connect with Kavya and with her womanhood. And, you know, if if having a child were an intellectual exercise, then th- that would just be a completely different kettle of fish. I, I don't know where I'm going with that. But. Well, maybe just that the body wants what the body wants and the body does what the right. body does. Yeah. I mean, so, it's, it's a very so baffling experience. And I think for women, I more than men, the, your body can take you over in a way yeah. that's just baffling and maddening. And Oh, yeah. The idea that when you're pregnant, your your um, organs shift, that, yeah. like, that freaks me out. I can't even imagine. Yeah. Right. But that's like the most in the most literal way, right? But there's yeah. ways where just hormones are acting on you and it's 
it's bizarre. You're yourself and you're not yourself. Something's inhabited you. It's, yeah. Um, yeah, there's a lot of ripeness for, uh, yeah, just, per, uh, I don't know, making that into what you need it to be in fiction, I could say. Right. And I think having been, been pregnant gave me some idea of what it is to to tie your body into having a child, even if you're not able to have that child. Right. I'm at a loss right this second, Bridget, what you got. <laughs> well, one of the things I've been thinking about, and I realize that they're in no way exactly the same, and I'm not sure why we keep wanting to make your fiction like your life. That's mm-hmm. one of the that's one of the obsessions they say about nonfiction writers. They want to tell you everything is a lie. Right. And fiction writers, everyone true. wants to know. Where it's <laughs> actually true. Yeah. But that you, yes, you're from Sacramento, but you have had the experience of being maybe not an immigrant, but a foreigner in a foreign country. Mm-hmm. You lived in Britain for years, right? Six years. Oh, that's Six right. Six years. Yeah. Um, so I could see that. I mean, you know, it's a completely different kind of immigration, if you want to call it that. Mm -hmm. But the dislocation, the learning a new way of doing things, can you just maybe even just tell us about it? What was it like to go to school there and and all that? Yeah. So I moved to Britain right after I got married. I moved to Nottingham, which is this this little city. They have a sheriff there, right? Yeah, they have a sheriff there and a a forest. Oh, the forest. Um, So I moved there. Right after I got married, didn't really... I had, like, one friend there and my husband, and my husband's family was nearby. So there was a real learning experience um, that that went on. And there was almost a new language that I had to learn oh, for sure. as well. So... Yeah. And how much did you feel like a displaced American there? I felt... I had felt a lot like a displaced American... Um, in those years, in particular, those were the Bush years. So mm. I was sort of this displaced American who had to be sort of a spokesperson for George W. Bush. <laughs> for not just all of America. <laughs> Everyone I met yeah. wanted to talk to me about George W. Bush and what he talk was doing. Talk to you or yell at you? Both. Yeah. Maybe not yell because they're, you know, they're British. Um, so I became sort of a spokesperson for someone that I didn't want to be talking for. You know, I didn't. I didn't support him. He wasn't really a representative of, of what I believed. So in some place I felt some ways I felt like a displaced American. Um, there, being an American in Britain can go either way. People either love the fact that you're an American mm-hmm. or they have really sort of snobby, you know, opinions about your accent and, and your intelligence. Intelligence. Right, the gun racks and, and pickup trucks thing. And I had people with horrendous Nottingham accents telling me that they didn't like the American accent. And And, and what does one say to that? Oh, thank you. Sorry. Don't know what to tell you. Yeah, basically like... Can't help you. (laughs) Your accent's pretty bad too. I never said that. I lived in Norway where people would sometimes correct my English. Oh, really? Because it was wrong because it was American. Because it was not British. I remember once I was taking a a British literature class... um, in Britain? In, no, in France. When I was in college, I did a year in France. And I remember that. the professor was astonished that I didn't read my Elizabethan drama in a British, in an English accent. Out loud, you mean? Yeah, when we were reading out loud. He's like, you don't read in an English accent? I was like, what? <laughs> he was a French guy? How would he was I? a French guy, yeah. Huh. I was like, why, why would I do that? So interesting. But a big thing as a writer that helped me understand Britain was this horrible job I had. I was working as a temp in 
the call center at Capital One. Oh my god! It was like the Ooh, worst job before. That's terrible. Yeah, it's like a Kafka novel. I still have PTSD. <laughs> I can't answer the phone anymore. Oh. Um, so it's like the opposite of here, where people never like to hear other British or other English accents. Yeah. At call, like when people call somewhere here, so you're they call their Capital One person in Britain, and an American accent comes on, and they're like, "Where are you?" <laughs> I would get that a lot. You see, if it helps, I'm Indian. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just not in India. We're just in England. <laughs> And but that actually helped me a lot to sort of learn how people spoke. So I would see on the screen that, you know, this person is from Chesterfield. This oh, person okay. is from Edinburgh. And this is how they speak. And I, was, I could equate that with sort of what their credit situation was. And I could get a real sense of class and economy and accent and language. Wow. From this horrendous Tell job. me this. Could you understand them all over the phone? <laughs> that would be terrifying to me. Pretty much, yeah. I didn't have anything, anyone with a, a really crazy accent. By that time, you know, a few months in, this was a few months into me living there, a few months in, I'd, I'd sort of picked up the rhythms, picked up the little but Edinburgh, phrases. But Edinburgh, that's completely different, right? Edinburgh, that's Scotland. I know, uh, but she said yeah, Edinburgh. Yeah, but so we would still cool. get, you know, Edinburgh and Northern, Scotland, Northern Ireland. It was all sort of part of the, the Capital One family. After I lived in Norway for a while, I was not really hired. I was a teenager, but given a job being the interpreter for a Scottish volleyball team. In the town I was in, and, and you were I was interpreting from Scottish to English. I was fine with the Norwegian. I did not know what the hell Scottish guys really? were saying. I yeah. really would yeah. be like, okay. I had no idea what they were saying, yeah. and yeah, it, it was so minutes. embarrassing. Right? I'd be like, right. okay, I'd tell them, and then they'd tell me what to tell this other person. Like, I'd be like you try flipping through channels, and you come across train spotting, and for the <laughs> oh, first yeah. five minutes, like, wait, what are they saying? That's true. Yeah. It takes a lot of work. So I am impressed. We're starting to... Uh, Master of languages. I was just going to say, we're getting to, mm-hmm. toward the uh, toward running out of time time, but mm-hmm. uh, I just wanted to ask you, it was occurring to me as you were saying that, so but so the, the approach you bring then to fiction is that really, I don't want to be trite, but it's kind of a citizen of the world type of approach. That experience, the immigrant experience, mm-hmm. how do you think that comes through? Maybe that's why you're able to write about different cultures. Maybe not. Maybe maybe, maybe that gave me some of the courage I needed. To find universalities? Right, to find universalities. I think when you live in other countries, you start to see what people have in common and, and where their differences lie and where their differences stem from in terms of experience and the, the ethos of a country and the priorities of a country and even the geography of, of how cities are laid out. Like you start to understand... See, this is why Everything I say that feeds into a person's. This is why I say all people who live in San Francisco and Berkeley need to take a road trip at least once a year mm-hmm. to Texas. Yeah, or Middle America, or Middle They're America, anywhere. or anywhere yeah, that's not within yeah. the fifty miles surrounding right. us. Yeah. Okay. All right. Noted. Noted. All you mm-hmm. people out there listening, uh, take that one year, once a year, uh, road trip, <laughs> <laughs> fifty miles from wherever you are right now. Unless, what if, what if you are in Texas? Then you need and to take a road trip to you Chicago. To to Berkeley. Yeah. Actually, yeah. actually, we they should, should do exchanges. Exchange. Exchange oh students don't God. have to be exchange international. Exchange students, coastal, inner okay. Coastal, America. flyover state. Yeah. yeah. Exchanges. South, north. Uh, before we wrap Seriously. up, Shanti, um, assuming people are hearing this in late February, mm-hmm. do you have any reading dates? Yeah. Where so can they see you? Where can they see me? So I'm going to be... Where can be, they pepper you with their own questions? 
Where am I going to be? I'm going to be in Sacramento in late February at the Sacramento Bee Book Club. And then most of my Bay Area dates, I also have some Bay Area dates. I'll be at UC Berkeley for Story Hour in April. Um, all of this was on my website, by the way, with this, which is shantisakarin.com. And I'm going to be doing an East Coast tour. Um, I will be in New York and D.C. in March. And I'm going to be actually down in Dallas at the Dallas Museum of Oh, Art. so you'll be taking your once-a-year trip to yes, Texas. Yes, my exchange program. Good. I hope it and enlarges you. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm sorry. I interrupted you. Say that again. Me and Mohsin Hamid will awesome. be at the Dallas Museum of Art reading and conversing, I guess. That sounds fabulous. And I think it'll enlarge me. I think I'll probably, I hope it will. I think you Eat just some get barbecue. Never tell a yeah. woman you want her to be enlarged. No. Really? Okay. In a soul sense. <laughs> in a soul. I was in thinking a, bodily. In a metaphysical. Oh, yeah. No, no. Oh, I come back huge. You know, I was joking because yeah. her book is so big hearted oh, and full of okay. such, uh, you know, magnanimity or whatever magnum, that word, magnum. word is. Because I unlike Shanti, I have not lived enough places and learned enough ways to express myself. You speak Norwegian. Ditto. Yeah, I speak Norwegian. I'm from Montana. So, um, Where those there are 6,000 Jews. <laughs> Total. Larry's my first Jew. First Thank ever. You. Thank um, you. But so, uh, yeah, those, are the, uh, those two things lead to, I don't know, not enough uh, wide range vocabulary <laughs> to express what I need to. About well, Bridget, here's your chance to express what you need to express. Take us out. I'm going to take us out, Larry, Shanti, and Bridget. Telling everyone out there to read, write, and just keep working. 